Let's stand up and give glory to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. We thank you, Jesus, for this word this morning, Lord. We ask that you plant it in our hearts. Help our minds to receive the challenge. Touch this word, Jesus. Help me in my weakness to deliver it. Put the glue in this word. Bring the thoughts together, Lord. The anointing pour out in this room this morning. As it already has through worship. As it already has through Dan's word. Jesus, we just thank you for who you are. You are incredible. You are magnificent. You are the desire of our hearts. You are more than we could have ever hoped for. We thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. Amen. All right. Is it okay if I point a... Is that okay? It's not going to do anything? All right. Cool. So I titled this... uh, Teaching sermon, I don't ever know what to call it. Teaching sermon, sermon, something. It's, the title is Called to Be With Him. Called to Be With Him. I was going to title it The Peril of Prayerlessness, but that just sounded really hopeless. So I went with that instead. <laughs> so I'm just going to pick right up where Nate and Christy left off. Uh, Christy really highlighted the prayer life of Jesus, and then Nate came in the following week and preached eight minutes over, and so he gave me the license to preach 30 minutes over. <laughs> no, it was awesome. Both of, both of them, uh, if, you, if you haven't heard Nate and, and Christy's uh, last teachings on prayer in the kingdom, uh, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to those. Um, <clears throat> Okay, so I'm going to get right into it, and I don't want to waste any time. This is going to be an exhortation to a prayer life. This sermon will be an exhortation to a prayer life. If we say, thy kingdom come, I cannot imagine it coming any other way than that we lay our lives down before the Father in prayer. So the first thing I want to talk about, or honestly, the first thing I want to say is, I am, I am not going to stand up here and prop my life up as an example of an amazing prayer life. I have seasons where uh, I ebb and flow, where I'm really in it, and then I'm not so much in it. And I want you to know that that is normal. And I say that because I don't want there to be any shame in the room related to what we did or did not do yesterday. Okay, today is a new day. Today we're going to move forward, right? Okay. So the first thing I want to talk about is on slide number one is to resist the temptation of dead works. So you can see here I got these three... Uh, They could look more like canisters, but they just look like black blocks. But you can see I've got these three uh, different kind of buckets, okay? This is a foundational truth to your salvation that needs to be understood in order to have confidence before the Lord. If we struggle to understand this, and it's not, this is not Ray's version of the gospel. This is the gospel, okay, your, your salvation. If we struggle to understand this, we will struggle with confidence all the days of our lives, okay? So this is really important that we understand we are justified by faith through, uh, justified by faith, justified by grace alone through faith alone. Sorry, that's one over here. Jesus calls us, we respond, he is now our confession, Okay. Then we are sanctified. That's our everyday experience. I said this last week at Kingdom Life, at the Kingdom Life 
uh, conference. This is our everyday experience in the Lord, how we are becoming more like him, okay? And then this is our eternal state, okay? We will one day be glorified, and we will be rewarded with glorified bodies and have rewards in eternity. Okay, let's go to the next slide. When we talk about praying, giving, fasting, blessing our enemies, and doing the works of the kingdom, they go in this slot. If, go ahead and go to the next slide, if we put them in this slot, we are in a bad place, okay? If we are attributing our serving, our giving, our praying, our fasting, and blessing our enemies to our justification, we will live in perpetual condemnation. That's why I say that this is so important to understand, because you're going to get two camps, you're going to get one it's legalism. They'll say, put this over here, and when you do these things, it strengthens your justification. That is absolutely not true. You have nothing to add to your justification, okay? You are, you are saved by grace alone through faith alone, all right? So let's go back to the previous slide. We put these things over here. We are submitting to Jesus' leadership and becoming more like him, and his leadership outlines these practices, I in no way, shape, or form attribute that to my justification, but into becoming more like him. Let's go back to the slide where it was over here just a second ago. Okay, so this one here, there's one other way that the body of Christ, it's more my age and younger that are doing this. They'll say, uh, the finished work of the cross, the finished work of the cross. So therefore, you now no longer have to do these things because of the finished work of the cross. That is also a bogus gospel, okay? And my point isn't to say somebody out there is wrong and I am right. That's not the point. Do not buy into that version uh, of, of doing these things. It's like uh, I was watching The Princess Bride the other day. You guys like The Princess Bride? Everybody in this room, better, that better be your favorite movie, okay? <laughs> somebody in here is like, that movie is so stupid. Anyway. There's a part of the movie where the uh, Sicilian, he keeps on saying, um, inconceivable, this is inconceivable, right? And, and they go along, and it's like in a three-minute span, I think he says it like 25 times. And the Spaniard walks up to him, and he's like, this word that you say, I do not think it means what you think it means. And uh, I think the same thing, when I hear that, that finish work of the cross, there's many in the body of Christ that are echoing that statement, but it does not mean what they think it means. The finished work of the cross is there is no other, there is no other sacrifice that can be made on your behalf. It is finished. The sacrifice has been made. We still participate. Let's go back to the slide with the check mark. We still do these things to become like him. That's our sanctification, and it is messy. Receive it. It's just messy, okay? We are not perfect. Nobody in this room's perfect. I am not perfect, all right? All right, so now that we got that foundational truth out of the way, we can move through the rest of this without feeling condemned about the choices that we've been making, right? If you don't understand that truth, grab somebody that you think does and don't let go until they have explained it to you and then you can actually explain it to somebody else. When you get to that point and you feel that confident, that condemnation gets broken off. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind. We want our mind renewed in that area. Condemnation typically gets attributed to that thought process, something being out of order, okay? I lived there for 15 years. It is a bummer. You don't want to be there. All right. So what we're going to do today, that was the mini teaching, okay? That one was free. Okay. So... What we're going to do today is we're going to go through some of the gospel events. No way I can hit them all. That would be a 
week series, and that would still only be a part of it, okay? But we're going to go through some gospel events, and what we're going to do is we're going to put them in chronological order. This is so important, to take the four gospels, because none of them have the whole story, okay? None of them have the whole story. They're all separate. They all have a different purpose. They all tell the story a little bit differently, but the Holy Spirit would challenge the body of Christ. Put those four books together. I'll help you do it. If you put them in chronological order, you will see things that you would not otherwise see. Because what ends up happening is, is if we don't put the events in order, we read it as fragmented pieces and it's a little bit weird. And it's like, why did Jesus say this? And now suddenly he's over here doing this thing. It seems out of place, right? That's normal. It's normal to feel that way when you're reading the Gospels. But when we put the events together in order, and nobody can do it perfectly, but we can get it pretty close, um, there's some things that begin to be illuminated and some patterns that, be, that come forward that make it, it really clear that we can apply to our lives. We're like, oh, I, I would not have seen that unless I saw this chronologically. So what we're going to do today, we're just going skip, to skip a rock uh, across the four Gospels. We're not going to, again, hit every single, that would be impossible, but we're going to hit one of those main threads that's working its way through. Okay, so Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, we're starting off, Jesus has already gone up to Cana, he's done the, the miracle at the wedding, uh, he's come down to Jerusalem, he's cleansed the temple, he's talked to Nicodemus, he's talked to the, he went back up through Samaria, talked to the woman at the well, and now he's back up in Galilee, and he's doing a ministry tour in Galilee, okay? There was a previous slide, it had a timeline, the, the little, okay, yeah, so those, those little arrows just represent Passover, it's like you know you're getting nerdy when you get the timeline going. And so, and there's also a map in your future. So just prepare yourself. Okay, so I'll keep the timeline. I'm visual. I like things like I, I don't, until I can see it, it doesn't make sense to me. All right, we can move to the next slide. So in Mark chapter 3, he's come up through Samaria. He's doing a tour in Galilee. Uh, he's been ministering in the synagogues. And in Mark 3, 13 through 15, it says, He went up on a mountain. Now Luke says he goes up on the mountain to pray. And he called those to him who he desired, and, he, and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve, and now we've got to grab onto this, so that they might be with him, he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. All right? Let's take a hold of that. We are called to be with him. Say, be, to be with him. That is, that is your primary calling. That is your primary calling. Say, it's my primary calling to be with Jesus. Okay? Don't get tunnel vision on that. Just get tunnel vision on this. It doesn't matter what your job is. doesn't matter what your occupation is. doesn't matter what your hobbies are. doesn't matter who your family, family is. I mean, those things matter. But tunnel vision, your number one thing is to be with him. Number two. You send them out to preach the gospel, or send them out to preach. Now, this does not mean that Jesus handed all of them a microphone and a stage and was like, now go and get 100 people. To preach could literally mean to go to one-on-one, -on -one, two people, three people, okay? So don't think of preach like, I ain't called to preach. Preach does not necessarily mean microphone. As a matter of fact, it most of the time just doesn't. So it's one and two people, discipling people, teaching them the ways of Jesus, Okay? And then number three, to have power over darkness, or what they say is cast out demons. These are the three things that the disciples are called to. All right? Now, when he says he calls them to preach, 
what did he call them to preach? Well, he called them to preach the same message that him and John have been, have been preaching, which is that repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, right? Now, we have to get this. This is another kind of unlocking of our minds a little bit, just like before when we talked about the justification, sanctification, glorification. If we think of repentance incorrectly, we will live in condemnation. Because if we think of repentance as I have to remember every single thing that I did wrong and bring it before the Lord for it to be a legitimate repentance, we, we would never overcome. I, I've got things going on in here that I can't even keep track of, right? So he, I, he's not keeping track of that list for me. I don't need to keep track of that list, okay? So the message of repentance is the message to renew your mind. And in renewing your mind, you are transformed. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not make a list of everything I did wrong, feel really, really bad about it, bring it before the Lord. Lord, I just really hope that you are not mad at me anymore, right? That's how I lived for 15 years, okay? It's not a good place to live. But when we lock into it's actually the renewing of our mind. Thinking the way Jesus thinks transforms us. Now, we don't say, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to change my behavior until I think like Jesus. Don't do one and not do the other. We do them both. We renew our mind. We, we act like Jesus acts, right? But it's not going to, it's not going to happen in reverse. We don't determine, I'm just going to be a really moral person now and be awesome. And everything else is just going to follow along. That will just end in a huge dumpster fire. Every single time, you will be an emotional train wreck. So we don't want to do that. We want our minds renewed. Now, how do we know that that was the message? Because this is, that's literally what they're saying is, is like there is a new way to life now, and you need to think this way. So repent of your old way, think the new way, all right? Well, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. So he calls the 12 to him, comes down, comes down the mountain, he stands on a plane, that's in Luke chapter 6, in Luke chapter, or Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? And he preaches the sermon on the mount, very, very popular, very famous sermon. But in the sermon, he says six times, he says it six times, you have heard that it was said, meaning you have this way of thinking, and then he follows it up with, but I say this, right? You think this way, but I say this, what are you going to choose, Right? And if we line up with Jesus' words, we aim to obey Jesus' words, we are in act actively repenting. Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> now, let me rewind just a little bit on this repentance thing because I do not want to take away the importance of the confession of sin. I, I, I will gladly lay on the floor and say, Lord, I blew it today. I, I need a reset. Okay, so I'm not saying we don't do that. But what I am saying is, is, you know, you get saved and then it's like there's 500 things on your list of things that you know you did wrong and now you have the burden to remember it all. We, we don't need to do that. But we do need to confess to our brothers our sins and we need to confess to the Lord our sins, all right? But we know what actually changes us is to determine that we are going to think differently. All right, so that was two years before the cross that Jesus, that Jesus calls the disciples. So now we're just going to go through some verses, rapid fire. Luke chapter 7, it's 21 months to the cross. In the city of Nain, Jesus, raises, uh, Jesus' popularity is going to go to the next level. 
So his popularity is already rising because he just taught the Sermon on the Mount, and it says they were astonished because he taught as one with authority. So in Luke chapter 7, it's going to say, in the city of Nain, Jesus' uh, popularity goes to another level. Okay, so when Jesus raises the widow's son from the dead, in verse 17, this report goes out, and it spreads throughout the whole region of Judea and the surrounding country. Okay, so now you've got to imagine, he's got the 12 with him, and he's starting to do things, and his popularity is beginning to grow. Kind of, you got to put yourself in the story a little bit, and it's better to put yourself in the story and not assume that you already know what the end is. Think more like a disciple and less like a 21st century Christian where we're like, eh, it's all going to end good, so no big deal, right? Get, get into the story like you don't know the end. So in Luke chapter 8, verse 22 through 26, it's now 17 months to the cross. He calms the storm, heals the woman with the issue of blood, and then invites, uh, invites his inner circle, James, John, and Peter, uh, to witness Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. Now he does this, this, this whole thing with James, Peter, and John, they're like his inner circle. He's, anything he does, it's like, okay, you three come with me. We're going to do this thing. And what it does is it's actually strengthening their faith in him to do the works that, that he does. Because Jesus doesn't think like in the terms of like here and now in the sense of like, I'm going to do this today so that, you know, in the next 15 minutes you feel good. Jesus is already preparing the book of Acts ministry team. That's what he's doing. Okay, so in Matthew chapter 12, Still 17 months to the cross, Jesus' popularity is going to go again to another level. And he heals the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. The Pharisees conspire against him. Uh, Jesus withdraws, and many follow him, and it says, he healed them all. Say, healed them all. He healed them all. In Matthew 10, it's now 14 months to the cross. He anoints the 12 to expand the movement. Power to proclaim the good news, power over devils, power over sickness. Now, it's, it's no longer one man walking in power, so you've got to get this part of the story. It's now 13 men walking in power throughout the region, and so Jesus' popularity is going to really explode because it's now times 13, okay? Luke 9, chapter 6, it says, And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. In Matthew 14, it's still 14 months to the cross. His popularity is going to rise again. By this time, he's fed the 5,000, he's walked on water, and he's healed as many as would come to him. Herod wants to meet him, the multitudes are following him, and the religious leaders are trying to devise a way to kill him. <clears throat> so it's really important as you're reading the story and as we are putting it in order, you see the crowds are growing. And he says this weird thing, when he does a miracle, which is don't tell anybody, right? Have you ever wondered why he says don't tell anybody? It's weird, because you would think, good news, he's here, he's awesome, he's doing awesome things, why wouldn't I tell people? But the reason is actually more practical than we would probably want to believe, and it's simply this, they would either king him or crucify him before the, the appointed time. And so he's trying to prevent that. And so as he's going into cities and people are not allowing him to, he can't get through the crowds to get into particular places. At one time, he preaches on a boat because there's too many people. He's like, Peter, put the boat out in the water. I'll get on the boat. Okay, so it's actually a more practical reason. There's too many people. And Jesus' mission on the earth is to, to display the will of the Father. All right? It's good that he did miracles and that he ministered to people's needs, but his primary mission was to tour all of Israel and say, this is who my Father is, and get the whole 
uh, region, all of Israel, a buzz about who God is. That was the point. And it's all going to end in a confrontation down in Jerusalem. In Mark chapter 3, it's now, or in Mark chapter 7, uh, it's now one year to the cross, and Jesus' popularity is again going to go to another level as he heals a deaf man with a speech impediment, but he charges them, don't tell anyone. It says in Mark 7, 36, it says he, he charged them, don't tell anyone, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And who wouldn't, right? He's, he's awesome. But I, would, I want to obey him too, so I don't know. It's conflict of the heart. All right, so Matthew 15, we're now nine months from the cross. He feeds the 4,000, and so everything in the ministry is increasing. The momentum is exploding, um, and everything just seems to be trending in the right direction. Now, Jesus and John the Baptist are so weird because they have the most successful ministries, and then they self-destruct their ministries in a way, right? It's like John the Baptist is like, I must decrease so he can increase. I don't love my ministry so much that I'm not going to decrease it in Jesus' name, right? Jesus first. And Jesus knows, because Jesus is going to allow this negative trend to begin to happen with the disciples. And it's really, really difficult to watch. And I could just imagine Jesus, like, putting his fingers on his temples and just being like, when is Tylenol going to be invented? (laughs) You know, because the struggle just becomes really real. So in Matthew chapter 16, all right, we're now six months before the cross. Jesus' ministry is exploding. Everybody knows that he's in the region. People are deciding if they're for him, if they're against him. The multitudes are following him. Everybody wants to be healed. Everybody wants to hear his teachings. But the Pharisees have let out, um, I don't know exactly what you call it, but they have They've gone out and basically said, if you're for him, we're going to cut you off from society. So you need to pledge your allegiance now. And that's when he begins to speak in parables. He's like, if you don't want me, I'm not going to speak a message that you'll understand. If you want me, you'll press through these parables to understand. If you love me, you'll press through this and get it. <clears throat> and that's why the disciples say, why, why, why are you doing that all of a sudden? Well, there's now a conflict, right? So in Matthew 16, we're six months before the cross, and something's going to change. It says at the pinnacle, or it's at the pinnacle of the movement. So you got to think this is like the high place. And if you're in the flesh, so just start imagining Peter, right? Everything's awesome. Jesus, we just got to keep everything going awesome. Like just the momentum is amazing. We're doing awesome. You've sent us out. We're doing miracles. We're casting out demons. We're preaching the gospel just like you are, Right? But at the pinnacle of that movement, Jesus warns the 12, and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, this is not an isolated statement. He's not just like a, and this is why it's so important that the story's not fragmented. Because he's not just saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and then like, well, just move on. It's, this theme is going to now carry for the next six months. The next six months is the most intense part of the story. Now, we know it ends in the cross, and that's really intense. But how Jesus is going to disciple the disciples over the next, over the next six months is extremely important. Because you do not get the Acts 2 church without the uh, gauntlet of discipleship from Luke 9 to Luke 18. Okay, so... That last, when you read the book of Luke, by chapter 10, you're already at the last six months. 
you're, you're, you're heading into that last six months, and that's where Jesus' most difficult teachings are. And so if you really want to be challenged, which I would really recommend being challenged, go to that place in Scripture, Luke 9, Luke chapter 9 through roughly 18, and you're going to hear Jesus say some really, really challenging things. But what it does is it actually strengthens the body so that we get in one accord. It isn't to point his finger and say, you guys don't have your life sorted out and you're never going to get it sorted out. He's actually strengthening, strengthening them to live selfless lives that are laid down and to pick up their cross. Especially Luke 17. You just get in there and just let your heart be troubled. <laughs> <clears throat> so he warns them of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And Jesus starts to speak to them about their deficiencies and their small compromises. And he's essentially saying to them, he's like, listen, I see your weaknesses. You don't actually see them. I see them. But if, if they go unchecked, if you don't address these weaknesses that you have, these deficiencies that you have, your life is going to unfold into a life of hypocrisy. That's what he's telling them. So this is what he does. He's so good. He is so good. He, he, he does this with all of us because we need perspective. He takes, us, he, takes, he takes them away from the momentum, the popularity, all the awesome things happening in ministry, and he brings them on a spiritual retreat. And he's going to reorient them to himself, to, to, the actual, to what's actually important. And he's going to say, who do you say that I am? Right? And we have to answer that question over and over in our lives, right? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him and he says, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. Jesus responds, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my father in heaven. And this, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's like calling out something in Peter that Peter is not even close to being. Peter's not even close to being, see, we read the story and we think Peter is like almost there. Peter's not even close to being the rock, okay? The disciples are nowhere close to who they're going to be in the book of Acts. Not even close. I would have traded this team out five times. Like, I need a reset, Father. Give me 12 new guys. But Jesus is just way too kind for that. He never gives up on people, ever. And that's a message for us, right? It's so easy to like give up on people. It's so easy to sit in this room and have given up on people that are in this room. That's just such, so the nature of our flesh. And if, and if we can't handle sitting in the room, we just move to a different church, right? And it's like, we will not ever truly learn to love until we can learn to love people in the difficulty of their life choices, no matter how much they irritate us. That's, the whole Sermon on the Mount is basically like, if I was going to say it in a mean way, I don't want to say it in a mean way because Jesus doesn't, but it's almost like get over yourself and love people. You have to love people in their weaknesses. <clears throat> but Peter doesn't like his answer, and so he turns and rebukes Jesus, and Jesus turns around and rebukes him. He says, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not, setting your things on the mind, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he could have turned to 
the other 11 disciples and said the same thing. You all have the things of men in mind. You really actually don't know what my will is. And you're not even actually trying. And we're going to see that unfold over the next six months. So the gospel, the narrative of the gospels at this point, this, the last six months, it shifts from ministry expansionism now to personal discipleship. And Jesus is going to put them through a radical discipleship program that they will understand. And he knows they are not going to get it. But he knows that these teachings will ultimately bear fruit in the book of Acts. And that's why he does it. <clears throat> I'm going to read this uh, from Alan Hood because I love how Alan Hood explains these uh, next six months. Or, I'm sorry, actually, let's put the map up. You got a map? I just kind of want to get us in the story a little bit here. All right. So this area up here is Galilee, Judea, Samaria, Perea, Decapolis, all right? Most of the time in the Gospels up to this point, he's been up here doing a ministry tour. He came down here for a little bit. He did go back and forth for a Passover. So anytime there's any kind of a, uh, you know, a festival, he's coming down to Jerusalem, but not really staying. He's staying up here, and he's touring this area. So this last six months, he's going to be here for a little bit longer, but he's going to start making his track down. He's going to come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Then he's going to pop. Yeah, he's going to actually stay here for three months. Then he's going to pop over here for three months to Perea. And then he's going to come back to Jerusalem, and that's the, uh, passion, for Passion Week, okay? So right now, where we're at in the story is he's coming from here, and he's making the track down. And all the while that they're making these choices that they're making, he's putting them through this discipleship program. So just to kind of give you a, a heads up of how this is working, because his real goal is ministry tour here, ministry tour here, ministry tour here, Okay? All right, so here's how <clears throat> Alan Hood describes the, the next six months. He says, For the next six months, the true nature of the disciples' hearts are going to come to the surface. As Jesus is going to allow for a season of decline in both power and ministry impact up to the cross. The popularity is going to begin to wane. Their weaknesses and leadership are going to show. Their powerlessness and insufficiency in the scriptures is going to be revealed. Their lack of unity, their propensity to violence, anger, doubt, despair... <clears throat> Let's see. For the next six months, they will be confronted with pride, prayerlessness, selfish ambition, violence, weakness in their ministry thought processes, and doubt and denial. All these weaknesses will emerge from the lives of the apostles. Here's the issue. They've been leaning on another man's anointing since Matthew 10, but have not developed a life in prayer to sustain the anointing. I'm just so thankful because they wrote, they wrote the Gospels. These guys wrote them or attributed to them. And they thought it necessary to add these, these next six months to the story so that when we read it, we don't look at super apostles, right? Because there's no such thing as a super apostle. There's no such thing as a super Christian. We make those people up. They're just weak human beings like we are, Right? Everybody in this room, we're all, on this, we're all in the same place. We all need the same help. And so they, they insert it in the story so that we have something to identify with. So when we see our own broken choices, we know that there's hope. So at the, he brings them on the spiritual retreat. 
And in Matthew 17, it's eight days later. It's eight days later. And Jesus is going to bring James, Peter, and John, his buddies, up onto the Mount, the Mount Transfiguration, right? Jesus' face explodes like a sun. Peter and James and John fall down. Peter starts going off about, let's build buildings. Elijah and Moses are there. They start talking to Jesus about his departure, which is the, the cross. Peter is totally in the things of man mindset. He's thinking Isaiah chapter 2. That's what I think. I think he's thinking Isaiah chapter 2. Let's build the governmental complex from Isaiah chapter 2 on this mountain. Let's build a ministry center where, pe- where we are powerful and people can come and people can go, right? This is where Peter's mind is at. We'll disciple people from here. It'll be amazing. <clears throat> Peter's got his ministry in mind and how he thinks that it should go. The cloud comes in, right? And he says, Peter, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to my son. Matthew 17, verse 5. And this is the trouble. When we get the, the biggest problems that we have in the church, when I say the church, I'm not like picking on any in particular person. Mostly I'm thinking of myself and my friends. When we run into trouble, it's that we're not actually listening to Jesus. We have our own ideas, our own agendas, our own pride playing into it. And we need to just stop and, make, and take an evaluation. Am I listening to the words of Jesus? Or do I just have what I think would be most beneficial in mind? Right? Because in Peter's mind, big, powerful, awesome, and impact the bigger, the better, the more powerful, the more impact, that has to be what's best, right? Jesus says, you, you have the things of men in mind. You're actually not thinking this through. So it says the next day they come down in Luke 9. The next day they come down, and the, nine, the other nine disciples are powerless. Are, their powerlessness is exposed as they fail to heal the epileptic boy due to their lack of faith. Jesus says to them, oh, you, you faithless. He's like, he, they, he, go, he, 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 he tells them that they have little faith, then he heals the epileptic boy, then he's walking away, and as he's walking away, the disciples come up to him and they're like, we've not, up until this point, really run into a situation that we've not had power over, so what's the problem? And Jesus turns to them and he says, This one only comes out by prayer. This one only comes out by prayer. And he's exposing them for their prayerlessness. He's not saying if you see somebody, you know, sick and hurting, call a quick prayer meeting. All right. How long do we do this for? Five minutes, six minutes, eight minutes, 20 minutes. All right, now let's pray for the guy. He's like, you need to layer your prayer life. You need to sit before the Father. You need to invest in a secret life before God. And that's what he's warning them about with the leaven of the Pharisees. He's warning them about their secret lives. That leaven in your secret life will work its way through. But prayer does the same thing. If you develop your secret life before God, eventually it works its way through. 
And your faith will grow and your expectations will change. All right. Matthew 18, still six months to the cross. Get out your Tylenol. Okay? A dispute arises among the disciples. Now, this is going to be a six-month dispute. So all the while, he's putting them through the gauntlet. I call it the gauntlet of discipleship. They're arguing about all kinds of things. They've got the things of men in mind. And then this little gem pops up. Matthew 18. Jesus, who, who, is, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And in Matthew 18, you would think, oh, they're asking Jesus, like, who's the greatest? Is it you, or is it the Father, or is it the Holy Spirit? Is it Elijah? Is it Moses? Like, who's the greatest? But Mark and Luke blow the top off of all that, and they reveal the real issue here. They're discussing along the way. They're making that walk. You saw the map. They're starting to walk down, and they're discussing along the way who has had the greatest ministry exploits up until this point. Who has been walking in the most power? Who's got the best pastoral gifting? Who's the best teacher, right? And there, there's, there becomes this infighting. <clears throat> and Luke, it says, they were discussing it on the way. And Jesus asked them, so what were you guys saying? What were you guys discussing? I heard you, you know, I think of my kids like fighting in the car. And it's like, I'm going to come back there. I'm going to, I will stop the car. I will stop the car and I will leave you here and pick you up on the way back. I would never do that to one of my kids, but I can't say that I've never said that. <laughs> That's not good parenting, so don't, don't, don't model. <clears throat> says, what are you discussing along the way? He says, but they kept silent for what they had argued with, for what they were arguing with is who was the greatest. In nine, uh, Luke chapter 9, the argument arose among them to which, to which of them is the greatest. So why this dispute? It all goes back to Matthew 10 when he initially called them and anointed them with power. you got to remember, these guys don't have the Holy Spirit in them. They have the Holy Spirit on them. Very different. The, the Acts 2 church is very different than what the disciples were doing. With when, and Jesus says in Matthew 12, he's like, Oh, that I wish I could call fire down. That they would have the Spirit in them while I was walking in them. You ever notice? We are baptism, baptized with fire. Jesus is baptized by the dove. Jesus gets a dove. We get fire. Jesus has no tension with the Father. When we say fire, just know, bad thing. Good thing, result is good, bad things are going to get purged. Fire means something is about to get burnt out. Ways of thinking, ways of processing, ways of doing things, selfish ambition, ways to build ministries, ways we think is going to be most impactful, right? Ways we think people should be operating, ways we are trying to avoid being irritated with people. Just all the things. We can make a really long list, right? Fire means purging. <laughs> if Jesus also got fire, we would be in trouble, Right? So Mark chapter 10, it's now still six months to the cross. This whole six-month thing, you just got to understand the hinge of the story, okay? 
Jesus is for, he's, he's going to foretell his death again, all right? He already had told them once, Peter, Peter rebuked them, and he's going to tell them again. And he says in Mark, Mark 10, verse 34, he says, I'm going to be delivered over to the hands of men. They're going to mock me. They're going to whip me. They're going to beat me. They're going to flog me. They're going to scourge me. They're going to kill me. And after that, I will rise three days. He says that. And they just keep walking along. Right? Do-do-do. We know later, because there's later verses that reveal they were not computing. And it's mostly because they did not want to compute. We love everything that you say and do, Jesus, except for that. Stop saying that. Well, as they're walking after Jesus reveals this, James and John, they come at him, and they reply, Hey, so here's an idea, Jesus, just thinking out loud. You in eternity, sitting on your throne, and me on the left, and John on the right. What do you think? And Jesus looks at him and says, you actually don't know what you're asking. And they probably are like, well, actually, we do know what we're asking. Because you said a little while ago on the road that when two or three gather in your name, you'll give them whatever they want. And so I got me and my brother John, you're here, and so Jesus, we're asking in the name of Jesus that we can sit on the thrones on the left and the right. And I could just imagine Jesus just like, please, right? And then John being like, so you're saying there's a chance. And then James looks at John, you know what we need to do? Maybe it's because there was only two of us. I think there needs to be three of us. Let's go get mom. So they run back into the walking caravan. Mom, we've already asked Jesus. The idea is planted. We want to sit at his left and his right. She's like, you're my boys. You, of course, deserve to sit at his left and his right. There is no other option for you. So, okay, mom, we've asked. We think if you ask, it throws it over the top. And then... And, and, and really, they're having this conversation. They want, they're preempting who's the greatest. If we sit at the left and the right, we're the greatest by default. That discussion is over. The greatest discussion is over, and now it's na-na-na-na-boo-boo to the rest of the disciples. So mom's like, okay, I'll ask. And I just imagine, because Jesus named these guys the Sons of Thunder, which is like this corny name. Like, I'm like, dude, 1994 wants the wrestling tag team name back. You know, the Sons of Thunder, I'm like, man, that just sounds so 1994, right? Where everything is awesome and extreme, whatever. So she's, they ask her and she comes along. And I can't help but because of Alan Hood and the way he describes this, imagine her as now like she's not Jewish, she's Italian. And she comes walking out, you know, swole, flexing, comes up to Jesus and She's like, this is literally how she frames it. Jesus, I need you to do me a favor. <laughs> she asks it like it's a favor. A favor is, can I have a cup of sugar? A favor is, can I borrow five bucks till Monday? No, she's asking, I want you to let my son sit at your left and your right and rule, all, rule through all the angels and eternity Forever. I want that. As a favor. And he says, okay. 
me ask you a question. He's so kind that he even, like, entertains these conversations. Like, how do, like, I would just, like, guys, I need to be alone right now. I need to be alone right now. But he entertains these conversations. And he says, can you be baptized with my baptism? And they're, they look at him, and he's like, in other words, can you live a sinless life, hang on the cross, be crushed by the wrath of God for other people's sins, and be raised on the third day? Can you do that? That's, that's essentially what he's asking them. And they go, yeah, yeah, we can do that. No, no, guys, you can't, you can't do that. Okay. But since you want a cup to drink from and you want a baptism, I have one for you. James, you go first. John, you go last. And you can be the bookends to the apostolic martyrdom movement. James, you'll be decapitated. John, you're going to be boiled in oil, but you're going to survive. Good news. And you'll be put on the island of Patmos. Right? It says the other ten heard the conversation and they became indignant. We want that cup too! Knowing, and they're offended with James and John, because James and John, really, what they're trying to get at, we're the greatest. All this is going to come to a head in the Garden of Gethsemane. But first, we've got to cover Luke chapter 11. It's five months, four to five months now to the cross. Well, no, even after this, okay, so it's Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, it's five months to the cross, and they come up to Samaria, and a Samaritan town won't let them through. And James and John are like, hey, hey, you want, us to, you want us to call fire down on them? Let's just explode that city, walk over their dead bodies, and then everybody will know how awesome we are, and nobody will ever oppose us again. Right? And Jesus could look at John and be like, dude, are you serious? Did you go back and read John chapter 3? I'm here to save people, and you want to kill them. Our mission statement, our mission statement has a, a massive problem. <clears throat> so in Luke chapter 11, see, we usually think of Luke chapter 11. They say, teach us to pray, Jesus. Well, we're four months from the cross. We've now been walking with Jesus for nearly two years, and now we're going to ask, Jesus, teach us to pray. See, we think of it like, Jesus, you're such an inspiration. Teach us to pray. Teach our humble hearts to pray. And Jesus could turn to them and say, I actually already taught you this at the very beginning when I called you in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I taught you to pray once. He doesn't. He doesn't say that because he's really, really kind. It's, it's mind-boggling to think for, for him because he's been having prayer meeting after prayer meeting after prayer meeting, and he's, he can say up until this point, we are so close to the cross. They don't know the cross is coming, but we are so close to the cross. What have you been doing at the prayer meetings? What have you been praying? It says in Matthew, or it says in Luke chapter 5, 16, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Lonely isn't by choice. Lonely is prayer meeting, nobody comes except for me. They were skipping the prayer meetings. Now what I'm not saying is, is that they never prayed. The Gospels never say that they never prayed. But the Gospels never say that they did pray. Not one time. I went through all four Gospels, 
And I was like, went through them four times. I'm like, got to be an example. There's got to be a place where the apostles prayed. It's got to exist. It does not exist. He invites them to pray, and there's three scenarios that play out. They either fall asleep, they interrupt him while he's praying, or they are picking their belly button. Those are, those are the three options. It's literally they're like standing around waiting for him to get done, and then they, they move on. So three months before the cross, Jesus is going to warn again of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they think it's an object lesson, like, hey, we fed the 4,000 and we didn't take any bread with us. Is he saying this because we didn't take bread with us? Is that what he's saying? He's like, guys, how do you not get this? I am telling you in your interior life, if it's not developed before God, the fruit of your interior life is going to work its way to the surface. It works its way to the surface. It's not karma. It's not uh, some kind of superstitious Christianity where you get what you deserve. He's saying, eventually, where you live in secret comes to the surface. <clears throat> and that's what's going to happen in the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. I'll wrap this up. So in John chapter 13, we're now at the Passover meal. And it's all going to come to a head. Jesus comes in and he washes their feet. Peter, in his false humility, having false humility, says, you ain't washing my feet. I'm too humble for that. You don't wash my feet. You're the Lord. And Jesus tells him, if you, you don't get it. If I don't serve you, you don't have any part in me. Oh, okay. Then wash my whole body. Wash my whole body. Jesus is like, nah, your feet's good. I'll just wash your feet. Then Jesus reveals next, I'm going to be betrayed. He reveals his betrayer. So he washes their feet, reveals the betrayer, and it's like the disciples say, well, good, now that you got that out of the way, the argument starts back up over who's the greatest. You can see they still have in mind the things of men and not the things of God. They have no idea what is coming. So in Mark 14, he brings them into Gethsemane. Gethsemane, I don't know how to say it. Somebody here probably does. In Mark 14, 34, he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And he stops and he prays three times. He goes and he prays three times, and he comes back to the disciples. All three times they're sleeping. And I, I, it just makes, I just go back in my mind to when Jesus first called them, and he said, I called you to, to be with me. And in the garden, this is my moment, and I want you to be with me. And they miss it. He says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour would you not watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation? It says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he wakes them up after the third time he prays. And he says, that's enough. My betrayers are here. Peter, not to be outdone by James and John's propensity to anger and violence by calling fire down. He picks up his sword, tries to decapitate the priest's servant. He wasn't aiming for the ear, guys. We hear the story and we think, man, he must have good aim. Got his ear. He was trying to kill the guy. 
and he just isn't an athlete, so he missed. <clears throat> and so what was once a really powerful movement by the next afternoon is now dead. Judas is hanging dead. The prophetic promises of Mary at the incarnation are dead. Jesus is dead. Peter has wept bitterly. And the rest of the disciples have scattered back to their insignificant lives. Pretend that you don't know the rest of the story. That you're locked in this spot now. Right? This is where we are. Your whole perspective is, is every prophetic promise from 33 years ago from Mary up until this point is now hanging bloody on a cross. Peter denies Jesus three times. Imagine what Peter's next three days were like. Have you ever imagined those three days? Full of shame, self-hatred, doubt, despair. But we know that that's not how the story ends, right? Amen? We know that that's not how the story ends. In Jesus 20, he comes out of the grave, and over the next 40 days, Jesus is going to appear to over 500 people, teaching and restoring his followers. In John chapter 21, Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to overcome his shame. Now think this through. Uh, put up the slide 29 if it's not already. He gave him the opportunity to resist temptation. So when his moment of pressure came, he didn't run from Jesus. Does this make sense? Peter's denials could have been prevented with a prayer life with a life based in prayer, knowing the will of his Father. <clears throat> he had three opportunities to pray, to, pre to prevent denying him three times, to prevent three days of shame. And this is where many, and I'm not trying to be a, a, a pessimist, but many of the body of Christ are stuck in this three days of shame cycle. We don't know how to get out of it. We've looked at our life in disappointment. We've looked at our, at our life in, in the despairing moments. We know that Jesus is the answer, but we don't necessarily know the way. Or we know the way and we're not participating in the way that actually sets us free. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. Jesus' vision for your life is not to live in perpetual cycles of brokenness. He does not promise to deliver us from every circumstance. He was not delivered from the cross. But what he does promise is to deliver us from darkness. We are not meant to live in bondage. Week after week, coming in, needing another prayer to set me up for the next week. Jesus wants to do something in us that sustains us far beyond this, this week was just so bad and I just need to make sure this next week isn't so bad. We are not looking for in for better circumstances. I will pray for better circumstances, but I know that that is not ultimately my source. Right? I, we all love a little bit more money, a little bit better circumstances at our job. There's nothing wrong with that. We don't set our heart in those places. Where we set our heart is, Jesus, I need my heart renewed. I need to put my heart before you. I have old ways of thinking. I need new ways of thinking. I have old ways of doing things. I need new ways of doing things. And the circumstances do not stop me from putting my heart before you. And that's a life of prayer. It's 12.08, so I'm breaking the barrier. Sorry, Nate. Everything 
and the book of Acts suddenly shifts and change. The apostles, they go to Jerusalem and pray. They're baptized by the Spirit in Acts 2. And it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, all these were continually devoting themselves with one mind to prayer. Right? Brothers and sisters, if we want Book of Acts results, we have to put in place Book of Acts practices. We cannot expect to walk in power over sickness, disease, and darkness if we do not do what Jesus has instructed us to do. When we don't take up our prayer life and put ourselves before the Father, which ultimately is going to end in intimacy, that's, the, that's really what he's after. He's after you. He's not after your obligation to prayer time. He's not signing you up for a duty. It's intimacy. He teaches it in Matthew 15. He wants you to abide in him and him to abide in you. This is what he's after. And it's going to result in power over devils, power over sickness, power over demons, power over darkness, power over anxiety, power over depression. Right? Jesus has the answers to those things. We can get too self-focused and think, nobody understands me, Jesus doesn't even understand me. Jesus has the premier teaching on anxiety and depression. Matthew chapter 7. He knows more about it than anybody in this room. He created your mind, he created your heart, he created your emotions, he knows exactly how you work, and he taught us about anxiety and depression. We have to listen. In Acts chapter 6, it's all going to come full, full circle. Verse, uh, slide 31. It says, but they will devote our, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. To prayer and the ministry of the word. To prayer and to say what Jesus says. Go to the next slide. And here's what it says. The initial calling in Mark 3, 13 through 15. And he appointed the twelve so that they might be with him in prayer. And that he might send them out to preach the word and have authority over <clears throat> and have the authority to cast out demons. And that's the rest of the book of Acts. If we want book of Acts results, we have to do what the apostles did in the book of Acts. And here's the conclusion. Let's stand up. In conclusion, this is what a life of prayer, and many more things, but these are four big ones. A life based in prayer produces the following. Power on our words to speak with the authority of the Holy Spirit. Power on our hands that's power over sickness, death, disease, and darkness. Power on our hearts that we would endure in faith in all circumstances. Everybody say, all circumstances. If you make your prayer life primarily about your circumstances, you will end up disappointed. Your prayer life has to be about your heart and the condition of your heart and how to endure those circumstances, not to be always delivered from them. Sometimes we are delivered. Sometimes we are not. But who we are in that place determines who we are amongst each other. And then ultimately, intimacy with Jesus. That we would abide with him 
and he in us. We are called, brothers and sisters, to be with him. Father, I just thank you for who you are and what it is that you want to establish in our hearts. Help us, Jesus. Babe, or Melissa, I'm sorry. Can you come up? Or did you leave? You're going to get kids, so you're not going to come and play that piano. Okay, you are? Yeah, do that. Somebody will, our kids will survive. They'll, whatever. I don't know who's going to do it, but they're going to do it. <laughs> See, look at that. Jan to the rescue. For that last song, can we sing uh, the king, that kingdom come? I can't sing, so I'm not going to sing it. Father, we have an eager expectation and believe in faith that you want to break through our lives. You want to break through in our lives, Jesus. I'm going to ask that what we do, it's not going to be a call to the altar, but we sit in this place, just like the early church did, and prayed together. Do you ever, you ever notice that the Lord's Prayer is a corporate prayer? Our Father. He's our Father. Deliver us from evil. Right? It's us, we, our. We have to do it together. You know what happens when we pray together? We start liking each other. <laughs> we like each other. We get in one accord with his will. So let's just do business. I know, it's, I know, I know everybody's hungry. It's 12.15. I understand. But let's just, in the spot that we're standing, in the spot that we're sitting, let's ask him, bring something fresh, Lord. I need my heart renewed. I need my mind renewed. Forget your circumstances for a minute. Just put them aside. Put aside how the week went. I need a heart that can endure in faith. Your kingdom come, Jesus. Your kingdom come, Jesus.
says, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Both times that he does that teaching in prayer, it's in, it's in the context of relational conflict. It's not ask for a Cadillac and you'll get a Cadillac. If you're living disappointed that you've not gotten what you've asked for, just make sure you're asking for the right thing. He's saying, I have strategies to build bridges and broken relationships, and if you ask me, I will surely give it. Think of, a, think of the person, the last person that's just done, done something that's rubbed you the wrong way and lift them up in prayer. Ask the Lord for a strategy to mend that relationship. breaks us out of bondage is, is how we relate to the people around us. So much of our internal, uh, our emotional traffic that's, that's building up in a negative way is mostly from how we relate to people. And he says, I want you free, but you have to get free on my terms. And you can't hold that person in prison anymore. you can't hold yourself in prison anymore either. So we have to ask, Jesus, deliver us in the area of unforgiveness. Give me a bigger perspective about the people around me. I want to be like you, so I need to love them the way you love them. You didn't trade out the disciples, so I'm not trading out my friends. You didn't trade out the disciples, I'm not trading out my church. I'll close with this. The smaller group that I have a little bit of influence in I encourage five minutes a day in prayer. I know that sounds simple. I know that that sounds elementary. But five minutes a day is better than zero minutes a day. And what will happen is, is the Lord will grow that five minutes. You'll be finding yourself sneaking away to be with him. You'll find yourself in instances where you would rather, you would have rather have had your mind entertained and you'll say, I, I gotta get another minute with him. Just me and him. The Lord wants to grow that and I, I guarantee he wants to grow that in every single person in this room. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, he wants that for you. So Lord, we ask that you do it in your name. That we will lay aside our flesh Listen, if we leave it up to our flesh, we end up with Doritos and Netflix. But if we submit to the Spirit, we end up with Him. We all have five minutes. We all have much, much more than that, actually. 
And he's going to grow that in us. And our intimacy with him is going to change. And our interactions with one another is going to change. And how we affect this city is going to change. And how we affect this region is going to change. And how the nations are affected because a small group of people are willing to lay down five minutes before the Father and pray to him. It doesn't take much. It's ask and you will receive. If you want a resolution, you have to ask. He will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. People who walk in power walk in power because they want it. kids, you can go get your kids. If you want to stay and pray, feel free to stay and pray. Yeah, if the prayer teams want to come down. Yeah, if anyone needs healing, you got any pain in your body whatsoever. Listen, I want to encourage you on this. If anyone has pain in their body and they come down here for prayer, every single person in this room should move to put their hand on a person. That is growing in faith. That is the act of growing in faith. If we don't take that action, we don't take the action of putting our hand on another human being to pray for their healing, we will never grow in faith. To grow in faith means to take the step. You are not responsible for the results, but you have to take the step of faith to put your hand on somebody. We thank you, Jesus. You are awesome. And we want to be with you. And we want to abide with you. In your name, amen.
I'm